thank you above all for the chance to speak in this amazing room, which I think is by some way the most understated room <laughs> given the talk. Um, and um, I'm, I'm delighted to have been given the brief of talking about basically what does Parliament and what does the, the, the country that MPs speak for, what, what, what do we owe Christianity? And in a way, Westminster, um, the very name of, offers a clue. Uh, what, what does Westminster mean? I mean, it, it is the, the, the large church, the cathedral, the abbey that stands west of the city of London. Um, and this is a reminder that Westminster was a centre of Christianity, um, a place of pilgrimage, a place of worship, long before it became a centre of royal, let alone um, parliamentary power. Um, and I think that you know, there was a salutary reminder of those origins, the way in which the beginnings of Westminster are deeply rooted in the fabric of England's ancient Christian past in the rituals that accompanied the death of the Queen and no doubt will accompany the, uh, the coronation of the King. But there is also, I think, a sense that um, Westminster has moved on, the country has moved on, that um, the days when Westminster was dominated by its minster, by its abbey, you know, this, is, this is all ancient history. And I think that um, when, we, when we think of um, Westminster now, we don't think of Christianity. We think of, it, uh, we think of it as being a shrine to parliamentary democracy, to secular democracy. And this, of course, is a, an understanding that has been sharpened by the way in which political figures over recent years have run up against the notion that religion and politics should be separate. The man I'm going to be talking to, Tim Farron, famously ran into this perspective um, a few years back. And recently, you know, ongoing actually, if, if we look northwards to Scotland, it's something that Kate Forbes, one of the, uh, the three candidates to replace Nicola Sturgeon, has been absolutely in the eye of that particular storm. The idea that religion and politics are things that are separate, that there is no place for weird supernatural beliefs in mumbo-jumbo, all that kind of stuff, in a modern secular democracy. And that even if people do have Christian beliefs, they should park it before they come into uh, the business of Parliament. But what I would like to argue this evening is that both the idea of the secular and I think the idea of democracy itself, even though you know, democracy is a Greek word, we can trace its origins back to ancient Athens 500 years before the birth of Christ. Nevertheless, I think that both of those concepts, the secular and democracy, in our country, they have resonances, they carry assumptions and meanings that would be unthinkable without Christianity. And I think the fact that we, by and large, tend not to recognize that is tribute to the kind of the core argument I would like to make tonight, which is that Christianity is simply the air that all of us, whether we have faith or not, 
whether we're familiar with the teachings and the practice of Christianity or have absolute ignorance of it, that it's part of the air that we breathe in, that we're goldfish swimming in deeply, deeply Christian waters. Now, this may sound a paradox. The argument that um, the secular, which is often seen as being antithetical to Christianity, is in fact deeply Christian. Um, this, this is something I think, the, you know, and I've had personal experience of this, this is something that lots of people are, are resistant to accepting. So let me just give a brief kind of sketch of how it is that we came by our idea of the secular. Because I think that, that for lots of us in Britain and indeed around the world, we have the assumption that the secular is just something that exists. It's just the way <coughs> things are. It's an inherent part of any society. Um, if you think of, uh, I don't know, books about ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or ancient Rome, um, there will often be a chapter on, say, the gods, religion, ancient religion, and then they'll go back to kind of talking about warfare or the role of women or whatever, how you build a pyramid, all that kind of stuff. And the assumption is that religion and everything else can be separated out. But this is, by the spect by, th this is a, pr a profoundly, <laughs> profoundly inaccurate understanding of what existed before Christianity. No society before Christianity had any notion of what we call the secular. The assumption was that the dimensions of the divine and the mortal, the supernatural and the natural, were utterly interfused, kind of like the gin and a tonic in a gin and tonic. You couldn't separate them out. And it's Christianity that actually does serve to separate them out. And perhaps the, um, you know, the little, the tiny little um, acorn from which this mighty oak of secularism has grown is, in, uh, is, is the famous um, passage where Jesus is approached by those who are trying to trick him. Um, they're asking, should, um, should, 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 should devout Jews be paying tribute to, uh, to the Romans? And he asks for a coin, uh, and he's given a coin, and he shows it and says, whose head is on this coin? And they answer Caesar, and Jesus famously answers, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and render unto God what is God's. And the point of this story is that you know, he's, 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 he's giving this answer standing on the temple, the temple mount, where people will bring coins with the heads of, of emperors to, to change so that they can then buy money for the sacrifices that are demanded by Jewish practice. And what Jesus is saying is something very radical, the idea that this is unacceptable, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, which Christ is preaching, that this is something distinct and separate from the order that the, the Jewish state embodies. Um, a, a, a dimension in which the priests and the ritual practice are bound up with things like money, things like sacrifices. And Jesus is saying that's unacceptable. But he's also, he, ha he also has the Roman state in his, in his eyes. I think when people read the, 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 the narratives of the Passion, um, you read that Jesus is brought before the, the, the priest, the high priest, um, and then he's sent to, to Pilate as the representative of Rome. And the idea is, is that somehow the Romans are secular, Pilate is a secular figure. But that's not true at all. Pilate also is a representative of a kind of supernatural order. 
an idea that state, earthly state, and the religious dimension, the sacral dimension, the heavenly dimension are interfused. Because Pilate, as governor, he's resident in a town called Caesarea, which is named after Caesar Augustus, who has by this point risen up into the heavens to sit at the right hand of his divine father, Julius Caesar, and exists there as a god. The Romans themselves have a great temple on the Capitol, sacred to Jupiter, and they believe that their entire empire is manifest proof of the way in which the functioning of the empire um, is pleasing to the gods. So for both the Jewish high priests and the Roman governor, the assumption is that there is no division between the states that they represent and the gods that they worship. As I say, they are absolutely interfused. But Christ, with that idea, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God, is complicating that. And I think that that points to kind of fundamental truth about what the kingdom of heaven is in the New Testament. It's something that is distinct from that understanding that the divine and the mortal are interfused. And this is an idea that kind of incubates throughout the centuries that follow the life of Jesus. And it receives its most momentous articulation um, in the writings of Augustine, the great um, church father writing in Latin. And so his writings will pass kind of into the bloodstream of, of, of the Latin-speaking West. And Augustine is confronted by a great crisis in the affairs of the Roman Empire. In 410, Rome itself, the Caput Mundi, the head of the world, is sacked. And Romans who are unhappy with the process of Christianization, the abandonment of the old ways, the old gods, point to this calamity as evidence that the Roman state has been insane to abandon <coughs> the traditions that had enabled it to become great. And what they're pointing at specifically is the abandonment of what the Romans called religiones. A religio is a bond. It's something that joins um, the affairs of Rome to the gods. And a religio could be a priesthood, it could be a festival, um, it could be anything like that. But the point is, is that you maintain them and then the gods look after you. It's a kind of supernatural um, kind of insurance policy that you take out. And by abandoning this insurance policy, this is what has led to Rome being sacked. This is the argument. And Augustine sets himself the task of refuting this argument. And his argument is that um, the Roman Empire is nothing special because it is bred of the fallen world. And everything in the fallen world is bound upon what Augustine calls the cyclum, which it's a Latin word essentially meaning the span of human life. So human beings are born, they live, they die, and then are swept away like kind of leaves on a, a great flowing river into oblivion. And so are cities and so are empires, even Rome's empire in the long run, Augustine argues, because everything fallen is bound upon the cyclum. And the only way to escape the cyclum, Augustine says, to obtain the kind of the radiant purity of heaven, um, the eternity that, that God in his, it, 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 on his throne offers, is through the, the religio, the bond that the church offers. And because there is only one God and one church, therefore there is only religio. 
there aren't lots and lots of religiones, as, as the pagans had thought. And it's this bond, it's this religio, that enables people bound on the flood tides of the cyclum. It's kind of like a rope ladder. You can cling to it and be pulled up, and, and, and then you can enjoy eternity. And this is a really, really kind of momentous formulation. This idea that there are twin dimensions, the cyclum and religio. And it becomes part of the fabric of what people in the, in the Latin church think. And it survives the collapse of Rome's empire. It's, it, it endures throughout the emergence of various barbarian kingdoms um, that are planted on the rubble of, of Rome's vanished empire. And by the 11th century, it, it serves to inspire what in effect is Europe's first revolution. Because radicals in the church, and specifically in the Roman church, look at this idea of there being um, only one way to escape the cyclum. And it inspires them to an incredibly momentous project, which essentially the, the, their anxiety is, is that if the church which is, offers the one form, the one religio, to the Christian people, if that is tainted by kings, emperors, lords, knights, whoever, who are bound upon the cyclum, then that will tarnish what the church has to offer. The, the, the metaphor that is repeatedly offered is that the church is a virgin dressed in white robes, and that kings and emperors when they claim a stake in the dimension of the supernatural, are like rapists with grubby hands, pouring and, and, and making dirty the radiant robes of the church. And that therefore, it's the duty of those at the head of the church, and particularly um, those around the Bishop of Rome, to force kings and emperors to back off. So emperors, for instance, who take for granted that they not only have the right, but the duty to intervene in, in the dimension of the supernatural, are told that they can no longer appoint bishops. They're told that that is a responsibility purely for the church itself. And this precipitates, you know, for 50 years, maybe 60 years, a really convulsive process that I think it's entirely legitimate to call revolution. The, the Christians at the time, the campaigners called it reformatio, reformation a recalibrating, a remaking of the whole of society. Because in effect what they were trying to do was to baptise not just individual Christians, but the whole fabric of Christendom itself. And this, this is a process of rupture, because the consequence of this, and it's a successful revolution, the church by the 12th century is able to claim an entirely sovereign status for itself. It exists over and above earthly kingdoms. And it has institutionalized a wholly radical idea. The idea that um, church, and let's call it state, are separate dimensions, separate entities. And nothing like this has ever been witnessed before across Eurasia. And so it's in that sense that the Middle Ages in, in Latin Europe, in Western Europe, um, far from being kind of hidebound, reactionary, backward looking, are absolutely the opposite. This is a, a, an incredibly revolutionary state. Um, and the, the, the Roman Church in the Middle Ages is a revolutionary institution. Now, of course, it's always the fate of revolutionary institutions that 
the fervor starts to kind of calcify. Um, the lava of, 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 of revolution starts to harden. And this is what happens over the course of the Middle Ages. There's a feeling that, um, that the church has either not gone far enough or it's gone too far. So you start to see people who are condemned by um, the agents of the church as heretics. Uh, and, and as we move into the 15th and then into the 16th century, this idea that there is a need to remake Christendom again, to, um, to purify the Christian people in a further way, picks up a big head of steam. And so what we call the Reformation, but it's not the Reformation, it's simply another Reformation, another process of Reformatio, kicks in in the 16th century and introduces a fresh twist to this idea that there are twin dimensions, what in, in, in Latin had been religio and seculum, in, say, Protestant England, becomes religion and the secular. And Protestantism gives to religion, the English word religion, a kind of weird double meaning. Because on the one hand, religion is something that comes to be seen as being personal to each individual believer. The Protestant looks into his or her heart, has a personal bond with God, unmediated by the fabric of the church. And so it comes to be entirely explicable that people start to ask, well, what religion do you belong to? What is your religion? But at the same time, the, um, the religious wars that the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation generate, the Thirty Years' War and the, the, the war of the, uh, uh, the civil wars in, in Britain and Ireland, also come to kind of generate a counter-sense, the idea that religion is something that defines a whole country. So you could say, what religion should England be? Uh, and of course that generates all kinds of, of tensions and in due course violence. And it means that by the 18th century, um, when English people start to go out into the world and to colonise it, they are taking with them what seems to them absolutely to be obvious, that there are these twin dimensions, that there's religion and that there is the secular. Uh, and you can go out into the world and you can ask people, well, what is your religion? So when, when the British arrive in, in India, in Hindustan, the land of the Hindus, um, the people say, well, what, what is the religion of the Hindus, of the Indians? Um, and they ask the Hindus, the Indians, and the Hindus of the Indians are very puzzled because this is an absolutely <coughs> mad question. They have no idea what these strange people are talking about. <coughs> but as time passes, as British rule beds down, as English comes to be introduced and promoted as the lingua franca, not just of the British themselves, but of the Indian elites that are being recruited by the British, so people in India start to absorb Christian assumptions simply by the process of speaking the Christian language that is English. And in answer to the question, what is the religion of the Hindus, the Indians, the answer comes to be that it is something called, that the British come to call Hinduism. It's something that can be separated from the great fabric of Indian life. It's something that has you know, scriptures, it has a priesthood, that's what the Brahmins seem to, uh, to, to the British, all kinds of things like that. And that in turn means that if there's something called Hinduism, 
same thing happens to Islam, to Buddhism, to Jainism, all the kind of various religions that um, the British find in India, then that implies that there is a secular space that can be defined as neutral. And this is the great kind of founding conceit of what comes to be called secularism. That secular, the, se that the, secular, the idea of the secular is somehow neutral. That if you can occupy the secular space, shove religions off to the side, then somehow you are occupying a neutral territory. And this is an idea that becomes so embedded in India that when the British leave, they leave behind the idea that a secular state is something very much to be <coughs> valued. So the independent republic of India is defined as being secular, with Hindus and Muslims all following religions. Um, and I think that what we see very clearly now, over recent years, particularly since Narendra Modi became Prime Minister, and introduced the concept of Hindutva, absolutely at the heart of his government, Hindutva, you know, the idea that it's possible to go back to an understanding of um, Hindu sacrality, Hindu practice, that is not defined as being a religion, but is something that utterly permeates every aspect of Indian life, um, and essentially has no place for the fundamentally Protestant Christian idea of the secular. I think that something like that, the process of what's happening, say in India, happening with, with, um, with Erdogan in Turkey as well, I think this demonstrates to us in the West that the idea of the secular is not something that we can take for granted that it's actually something very, very culturally contingent. It's something bred very specifically of the kind of the, uh, the centuries, even the millennia that, of our history, and it's bred specifically of Christian theological assumptions. So secularism is not only not neutral, it's also not, not Christian. And what about democracy? So democracy, as I said, is clearly a word that is much older than Christianity. So how can I possibly argue that, 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 that our understanding of, of democracy is fundamentally Christian? Well, what I, one of the reasons that I ended up becoming so interested in Christianity um, was that when I wrote about pre-Christian civilizations, I, I found again and again that the English language was... was militating against my ability to articulate things that um, I wanted to express about, that, 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 that seemed very alien to, to my own way of thinking and, 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 and to my readers. And democracy is a kind of absolutely classic example, because what is the demos conventionally translated as the people, and what, is, what does giving power to the demos mean? I think by and large people today, if you say, well, what was Athenian democracy, they would think of it as being something that, is, that, is, that, that, that people within Athens have by right, because that's how we tend to think of democracy. People have votes by right. It's their right to have a vote. And that, of course, is why whenever people talk about Athenian democracy, and it was only men who had the vote, people will always say today, ah, but what about the women? What about the slaves? But that's a very, very Christian assumption, the idea that a vote is, is a right because every individual human being has a dignity, has a value, and therefore they should have a right to a vote. The demos in 
ancient Athens was something altogether weirder. It was the totality, certainly of everybody, bred of the soil, bred of the, the living earth of Attica. But it was also those who had lived before and those who would die. So the idea of the demos is inherently supernatural. And the, as to the question of, of why men have the vote and women don't, it's not because women were unvalued by the Athenians. It was because it was felt that um, their contribution to the power of, of Demos was, in a way, more elevated. It was the responsibility of, of men in Athens to, to fight for the city and to compile laws and to... Uh, and that's why they had the, the votes that they did. But it was the job preeminently of women to mediate between the demos and the gods, and particularly Athena. And so that's why when festivals were held on the Acropolis, it was invariably women who would lead these processions. And to our way of thinking, if you, if you say, well, religion is something absolutely separate from the, you know, the, the functioning of Athens, the functioning of Athenian society, the functioning of its democracy, then that looks, you know, so what? Women get religion. I mean, that's nothing. But once you understand that the Athenians had no notion of something called religion, the interplay of, 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 of mortals and gods was manifest in everything, everything that made life worth living, everything that made the democracy function then you see that actually the role of women in keeping the gods on board, and perhaps particularly Athena, the female goddess who gave her name to Athens, was absolutely fundamental. And that's why I think that um, it's, it's putting our assumptions in that very ancient context that brings home just how deeply Christian we are. Our understanding of democracy is founded on the idea that everybody's vote counts. And everybody's vote counts because every, everybody in this country matters. And everybody in this country matters because there is a kind of overarching assumption that everyone is, is born equal and has a kind of inherent dignity. And that in turn derives ultimately from the book of Genesis, from the idea incredibly weird, radical idea that men and women are created in the image of God. So both the secular, I think, and, the democ and democracy, you know, these are highly theological concepts. And the paradox is, you know, and, and, and the, the history of, of the secular illustrates it beautifully, is that we have forgotten in our parliamentary democracy, in our secular democracy, what culturally we owe to Christianity for deeply Christian reasons. And again and again and again, whenever you look at um, arguments that religion and politics should be kept separate, you realise that even that argument is not a neutral one. It would be unthinkable without Christianity. So thanks very much. <laughs>